hello everyone. Uh, my name is Nigel Gaynand and uh, I am the person who runs BELLS. And for those of you who do not know what BELLS is, BELLS stands for British Educated Life Scientists, of which there are many thousands working around the world in senior and influential positions. Today, I'm delighted to welcome you to the most recent edition of Bell's Brief Chats, and I'm delighted that John Young, who is the Chief Business Officer of Pfizer, is able to join us today. Welcome, John. Okay, thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, um, I guess we start with your Scottish roots. Um, where did you grow up and go to school, and uh, what led to your decision to study biology and biological sciences and attend Glasgow University? Well, thank you. Um, so, yes, as you can tell from the accent, I am Scottish, uh, although I uh, haven't lived in Scotland for the last 20 years of my life, but uh, still very much part of my roots. I was born and brought up in Dumfrieshire in the middle of farming country. So my, my background, uh, you know, hails from farming uh, stock and ancestry. I went to a very small little village primary school, uh, which had around about 30 pupils across seven year groups. Uh, it's a very small uh, then went to uh, the largest town in my area uh, for secondary school, that was Lockerbie. I uh, went to Lockerbie Academy, a local state school. Uh, Lockerbie was a very small uh, town of about 8,000 people that nobody had heard of, unfortunately, until Pan Am 103 was blown up over the town in the late 1980s. So, uh, so that's where, where I grew up, that's my place. And at university, um, I studied biological sciences at Glasgow University. At school, I was always drawn to sciences and English. Those were the things that I was particularly good at and really decided that uh, pursuing sciences at university was where my, my passion was. And uh, you know, I had the opportunity uh, doing my uh, undergrad degree at Glasgow uh, to uh, sort of pursue that passion, uh, very much enjoyed that. And then I did a year of postgrad research um, uh, in an immunology lab at Strathclyde University um, with a view to potentially uh, pursuing research sciences more seriously. But after about a year of doing that, it became clear to me at least that uh, spending uh, uh, the rest of my life in a research lab shaking test tubes until I was 65 probably wasn't going to be my calling in life. And uh, although I very much enjoyed the science, it felt like it was the right time to begin to think about other career opportunities. And that's when I joined Pfizer. Okay. And um, did it, did you, it looks like you might have taken a little time off after university before joining Pfizer. Um, and you went in obviously in a sales position and that turned into a lifelong career association with the company. Was that actually in Scotland at the outset? Yeah, I joined, I joined Pfizer actually straight after, uh, literally straight from uh, my postgrad uh, research post at uh, Strathclyde and joined as a trainee sales representative. So although I have a science background, uh, most of my career up until this role has been largely in commercial sales, marketing, general management uh, type roles. Um, but uh, yeah, I joined in Scotland. Uh, so my first uh, territory as a sales rep was in Southwest Scotland, where I'd grown up uh, and around about the outskirts of Glasgow. And uh, you know, had the opportunity at that time when Pfizer had been through a period of, of fallow R&D uh, productivity. And uh, when I joined, 
we had what looked like at the time a very promising pipeline of innovative new medicines. And those innovative new medicines turned into some genuinely breakthrough uh, treatments such as diflucan or fluconazole, which was a real breakthrough for serious fungal infections at the time when HIV particularly was becoming more prevalent. Uh, and had the opportunity to work in our cardiovascular uh, division, uh, working on a number of our products that we brought to the market, you know, in the sort of late 80s and early 90s. So very exciting time for the company. Yeah. And you'd obviously moved up in sales management, you know, from district level to regional level, and then finally on to national level. Um, did that involve you moving around the UK or was it all still Scottish based? So I, my first management role uh, as a district sales manager was still based in Scotland, although my, my area was all of Scotland and uh, Northern England uh, at the time. And uh, then when I was asked to take on a regional management uh, post uh, for the, the north of the, the country, uh, my post was actually ironically relocated down to the south of England uh, to Sandwich, which is where Pfizer was based at the time, yep. Uh, yep. adjacent to our research labs. Uh, so my family and I made the uh, big move uh, for, for Scott, at least, uh, to move from uh, Scotland, Glasgow, where we were living, down to the south of England. Uh, in fact, we still have a home there uh, to this day. And during that time, I, I assume that it was Pfizer must have invested in you a little bit by enabling you to, to get your MBA at Strathclyde. Yeah, I was very, very blessed, actually, to have... Uh, a couple of bosses, you know, during the course of my career who were very, very intentional about people development and very supportive of people development. And at the time in the sort of early 90s, uh, Pfizer didn't have a great, Pfizer UK didn't have a great uh, history of people having done MBAs and most senior managers in the company had got to where they were without having done an MBA. But I certainly felt that um, while I had a, a good uh, foundation in the sciences, I didn't have any formal business training. And so I put a proposal to my boss at the time to um, do an MBA. And he was uh, supportive enough, although he hadn't done one himself, to take it to management at the time. And they put in place a bespoke program where I was reimbursed every term as, as I passed my exams. They, uh, Pfizer reimbursed me for the cost of that term's uh, education. So we did it sort of like that over the course of three years. And I did my MBA at Strathclyde University uh, part-time uh, alongside uh, my work at, at Pfizer as a district sales manager. So yeah, I was really very, very blessed and very fortunate. Just I was gonna say that uh, obviously you started getting further experience in the commercial arena through shifting into marketing roles. And so you were in the cardiovascular area, but then you took up a sales directorship and then a marketing directorship. Were these latter two still in that cardio field or were you now gaining out of disease experience and were they still UK based? Yeah, so, so all of those roles were UK based at the time. Uh, again, we um, Pfizer UK in the late 90s had a country manager, uh, Ken Moran, who had previously run our Australian business and he came to the UK uh, and ran Pfizer UK that had done very well. But Ken was a real visionary and, and really took an organization that had done very well by its own standards and really 
shook the company up and really invested very formally in um, uh, strategy development. He invested very formally in a, a great performance management system that we spent a lot of time and effort developing to really enhance the culture and the performance orientation of the organization. And he was also very keen on moving people around the, the organization. And so Ken uh, took me out of uh, you know, my career in sales. So I'd spent probably almost 15 years of my career in, in sales by that stage and uh, moved me into a marketing role that was cardiovascular marketing initially. And then about a year later, moved me back to, to run the sales organization in the UK. And then uh, when we merged with Warner Lambert in 2000, I was given the opportunity to either stay in sales or move to head the marketing organization in the UK. And I sort of felt that I had a lot of uh, sales experience under my belt and only a little marketing. And so career development wise, that was going to be the better alternative. And so I, I took that role and ran the marketing organization in the UK from 2000 through to 2004, which was a great set of experiences and a very exciting time for the company. And, and then, so to speak, you, you got your own shop, uh, moving to Sydney to be managing director of Australia for Pfizer. Yeah, I mean, the uh, obviously, when you when you move functionally up a sales or marketing role, uh, the next uh, logical step in some ways in, in pharmaceutical companies is to become a general manager. And that certainly was my career development plan. Uh, at the time, I was asked to apply for the uh, the open position in Belgium, and my wife uh, uh, said, "You know, well, that would be great. It's not too far away. It's just across the English Channel." And uh, when I went to New York for my interviews, uh, between leaving the UK and landing in New York, they'd added a couple of extra interviewers on the end of the uh, the panel, who were the the folks who were actually interviewing for the Australian role, which I hadn't applied for. And uh, the HR people said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we're just putting everybody through. It's just a formality. And anyway, out of my uh, application for Belgium came an offer to go to Australia, which was a much bigger and more complicated market, but also one that was on the other side of the world. So in every respect, it firmly took you know, me personally, but also our family outside of our comfort zone, but was truly one of the sort of great, greatest experiences you know, my, my career in terms of the things that I had the opportunity to, to learn and help accomplish both for the, the company, but also the industry association that I ended up chairing during my tenure there. Yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't have gone to one of the more pretty cities in the whole world as well in Sydney. Um, and then in many ways a return to take up a similar position, but back in the UK must have been an exciting development for you. Yeah, I mean, it was. I, I guess, you know, the, the sort of dream, although, you know, probably few of us, certainly I didn't ever expect that practically I would have the opportunity to become country manager of, of Pfizer UK. That was certainly one of the biggest uh, affiliates uh, within Pfizer globally at the time. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to return back to the UK uh, was uh, great from a personal point of view because our kids were at the stage where they were going to begin to go to secondary school um, and so you know having them anchored in one educational system was important but from a professional perspective it certainly was you know a great opportunity because the UK uh, was and is you know one of the most sophisticated markets in the world with a highly developed uh, HTA system and NICE uh, a very sophisticated regulator in the MHRA and uh, the opportunity to um, you know, uh, serve on the ABPI board that I did 
and also to be you know very engaged in you know health policy work as well as obviously running our business were you know a combination of things that certainly was very um, very satisfying and also very rewarding as we really tried to make sure that the the gospel of um, the value of innovation to our world and to our healthcare system was something that uh, that we prosecuted and could really try and demonstrate. And then uh, further rises in the corporate ladder, first as a regional president of care for Europe and Canada, and then head of the primary care business unit. Uh, were those positions both still in Europe or based in New York? Uh, so the, the the next role was uh, the running our business in Europe. Uh, I did that based from the UK, but obviously, uh, in that kind of a role, you begin to spend uh, large amounts of your time on a on a plane, which I did. Uh, yep. You know, working with my team across Europe, and I did that role for about three years. And then uh, on a Friday night, um, I was uh, sitting in a room with my uh, finance uh, lead at the time, uh, going through forecasts for the year, if I remember. And my assistant knocked on the door and uh, said, Ian Reid's on the phone. Uh, well, he wasn't in, generally in the habit of calling me. And I, I literally walked across yeah. the corridor to my office. And uh, he told me that, um, you know, someone uh, was leaving the company to go and be the, the CEO of another organization. So it was great for him. And he was moving my, my boss at the time, who was Livery Brandicor, who went on to become the CEO of uh, Sanofi. Uh, he was my boss and he was moving Olivier to take over from the, uh, the person who was leaving and asked if I could be in New York on Monday morning to take over the, uh, the primary care business, which was, uh, which was uh, somewhat of a uh, shock. It wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't quite sure exactly what my next career development move was, but I have to say it was an enormous privilege to take over um, a very important uh, business unit for Pfizer, that's where our cardiovascular medicines were cited and where we were in the process of really beginning to turn around our research pipeline. And at that time, the clinical development organization, as well as the commercial organization, reported into the, uh, the business unit president. So um, it was uh, a big uh, personal and professional upheaval and challenge that required relocation to New York, um, where I've been based ever since. Um, but an enormous uh, privilege to, to really work through what it was like to really particularly begin to invest in making key decisions to help to turn around an R&D-based uh, organization. And uh, that was something that I had the opportunity to do for a couple of years, and it was a great privilege to work with, uh, with my team at the time. Uh, and then you became president of First Essential Health and then Innovative Health. Can you tell us a little more about both of those positions? Yeah, so Pfizer Essential Health uh, was a business that was really comprised of um, all of Pfizer's post-patent expiry brands uh, around the world. And uh, we then formed another business unit that was more or less the other half of Pfizer's revenue at the time. The two businesses were almost equal in size, which was all of our patent-protected uh, businesses. And at that time, um, we were still um, in the process of turning around our R&D productivity. We'd made some significant strides, but we still had some way to go. And Ian, uh, as our CEO at the time, was contemplating whether to actually split the company entirely and to actually uh, spin off or separate in some way Pfizer Essential Health. So we went through a period, as those of you who followed Pfizer may recall, of, of uh, thinking about what we called optionality, that we had the option to split the company. 
So it was mm -hmm. a, a fascinating experience. It was a PEH business, the essential health business comprised most of Pfizer's revenues in emerging markets. So I spent even more time on a plane. I spent a lot of time in China and Latin America and Asia, uh, Africa, really, um, and understood uh, firsthand that even in the face of you know, many um, generic alternatives to many of the brands that we had, that you know quality of generics in, in many emerging markets was you know was not high and the brand equity that you know our original Pfizer brands had was enormously high because physicians and patients knew that the quality that you put into their manufacture the distribution the research behind them uh, you know made them really superior to uh, the quality of you know many alternatives and so it really was, yep. you know, a very different kind of a business um, with an enormous product portfolio, but one that was very, very, uh, very challenging. And I learned things that I'd certainly never learned in, in any other role in my, my history. Um, then in what, 2017, 18, our, our board um, asked Albert to become the CEO of the company. Uh, and he subsequently stepped up, obviously, to become the CEO. And Albert asked me to succeed him as the uh, president of uh, the innovative health business that is now uh, the Pfizer Biopharmaceutical Group. And that was the business that comprised all of our innovative business units. So internal medicine and oncology, rare disease, vaccines, and, and so yeah. on. And, uh, you know, again, a very different kind of business, you know, entirely different kind of a business, more of a developed world business. And one, obviously, that uh, engaged me again in very close uh, working with our research leaders, our clinical development leaders, as we you know, looked not only to manage the, the um, inline medicines and vaccines that we had in the marketplace, but really to begin to play a role in making choices you know, around which research programs we progressed, uh, which looked most promising, and to you know, try and apply you know, thoughtful strategy for how we could continue to strengthen and develop our portfolio. So two very different experiences, but both uh, enormously complementary and ones where I learned a lot. Yeah. And then finally, in 2019, you ascended to your current uh, position as chief business officer within the company. Um, given the areas that you seem to have to cover, this must be quite a, a challenging role. Include, it includes strategy, consulting, business development, business assessment, the R&D portfolio, decision analysis, global commercial op operations, reimbursement and access, and consumer healthcare. That's exhausting to me just to contemplate all those responsibilities. No, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating role. And, uh, you know, it really was the culmination of, of Albert's um, um, thinking to, to really create an organization whose primary purpose was to help Pfizer to continue to execute on our strategy. So during that period, um, we established um, three distinct businesses, our biopharma business, that is our innovative uh, business, uh, Upjohn, that was a subset of the essential health business that comprised our post-patent uh, expiry brands for the emerging markets largely, and then our consumer business. And our goal was to put in place strategies to help each of those three businesses be successful. And we have subsequently combined our consumer health business with GSK to, perform, to form the, uh, the world's uh, largest consumer business. And we have a joint venture with GSK uh, in that. 
We have uh, subsequently separated the Upjohn business, combined it with Mylan to form Beatrice. Uh, so, you know, um, combining the strengths of two organizations in a very complementary way, the uh, pipeline of Mylan along with the commercial footprint and engine of the Upjohn business in emerging markets, and then our biopharma business. And so for the biopharma business, the, uh, the, cap the capabilities within the CBO organization that I run are really premised around helping the organization, you know, across the enterprise to really execute in a very focused way on the strategy that we laid out uh, uh, in the 2017-2018 time period to progress our pipeline and to make good um, resource allocation choices in terms of which research programs we progress and which we don't. And also to strengthen that pipeline by focusing not on um, financial engineering type of M&A, but to focus on you know, really um, science-oriented um, uh, acquisitions, licensing deals for clinical stage assets that could complement our internal uh, pipeline that was becoming much more productive. And so really that you know, was and remains the, the focus of the role that I have uh, today. And uh, you know, certainly a very stimulating, challenging role and one where um, ironically that um, science background that uh, I, I developed uh, during my, my tenure at Glasgow University and Strathclyde University has become probably much uh, more relevant in the role that I have today where I work very closely with Michael Dolston, our head of R&D, and Rod McKenzie, our head of yeah. clinical development, than probably any other, any other role I've ever had. And all along the way, as you're building your career, uh, you've grown a family, three daughters, I believe. Um, have they grown up largely in the US or have they split their time with the UK? So our, our kids, uh, you know, came with us when we went to Australia. So the uh, the girls spent uh, three years in uh, in school in Australia and came back to the UK at the time, sounding like uh, little Aussies. We got some very entertaining family videos from that era. But they all then went through school and university in the UK, and uh, all three are either in or about to be in the uh, the working uh, environment in the UK. So they're pretty much UK based. Uh, and my wife, you know, has uh, been there with uh, with our kids uh, during that period. They've all spent large chunks of, uh, you know, uh, summer vacations and uh, Christmases here. Although that gets a little more difficult as the girls have got older and moved into uh, the working world. So really, we we're kind of a, a family with uh, one foot on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, currently, you sit on the boards of both Johnson Controls and. The bio organization in Washington, which is the equivalent of our own BIA, um, while well, you also sat on the UK's Life Science Council, uh, which was actually preceded by the Ministerial Industry Strategy Group, which I myself, for my sins, sat on a number of years back. Uh, I assume uh, that your involvement in both bio and on the Life Science Council led some valuable perspectives to share with both camps. No, very much so. It's I, I think one of the things as you progress in your career and you have more experiences that you really come to value is that you know the world really should value having uh, an innovative science-based um, research-based industry. And the thing that you also realize is that actually it is an ecosystem, and it's an ecosystem that is based on. Uh, collaborations between academic institutions, between uh, healthcare providers, whether it's the NHS in the UK or provider system in the United States, 
and biotechs uh, right through from you know uh, startup biotechs through to clinical stage biotechs through to midsize and big pharma you know that that entirety really is an ecosystem and you know there's an enormous complementarity in terms of not just um, capital financial capital but obviously knowledge-based capital uh, skills and uh, resources you know that are shared really across that that ecosystem and really, I think one of the things that you realize is for any country that has an intention to have an innovative bioscience ecosystem, um, having a healthy, um, having healthy conditions for all of those sectors to be able to thrive is absolutely fundamental because you won't have an ecosystem that works if any one of those uh, sectors is in some ways uh, you know, constrained. And so, you know, sitting on the bio board, I know for many of my, my colleagues who, you know, are in the uh, uh, preclinical stage, you know, of their assets where they don't necessarily have clinical data to point through, being able to raise uh, B and C stage, you know, capital, you know, rounds is incredibly important. And I know from my colleagues in the UK, for example, that, you know, the capital uh, environment in the UK can sometimes be tougher, more difficult than in the United States. Uh, that's something which for the UK is, you know, an issue which, you know, the, the government and the financial sector should uh, continue to uh, find ways of addressing because it really is vital if the UK wants to have a vibrant uh, 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 ecosystem of startups and small biotechs which have the potential to grow uh, and become, you know, clinical stage and commercial stage companies. But it's equally important that um, health systems also provide access to the innovation the science that we are doing you know those the science that our industry does is science with a purpose which is to really positively impact the lives of patients to provide value for the healthcare system and so one of the things that i think on both sides of the atlantic is a dialogue that i and probably many others continue to engage in is making sure that you know ministers and policymakers understand that just treating uh, you can't um, value the ecosystem and the science and think this is wonderful if then you view the product of that science and innovation as a commodity to be procured at the lowest possible price. It should be procured efficiently, but at uh, prices that reflect their value. Otherwise, the inherently, the, the economics of the ecosystem breaks down. And so that's something to me that uh, has been enormously important part of the, the role that I've, I've tried to play both on the Life Sciences Council in the UK, but also on the bio board in the United States. Uh, and obviously Pfizer has historically really had a strong presence in the UK. And of course, it's highly visible at this moment in time as one of the current vaccine providers. Um, have you been intimately involved in that process? say, particularly with the vaccine task force, uh, which was formerly under Kate Bingham? Yeah, I mean, personally, uh, I and probably 20,000 uh, colleagues at Pfizer <laughs> have uh, personally been involved in the development of our, our vaccine. So this has been a real uh, team effort. My role really started probably this time last year in the sort of February, March timeframe, when it became very obvious that this was not going to be just a China pan, you know, issue. Uh, it was going to be a pandemic. Uh, it was early evidence that suggested, even before the WHO declared it as such, that this was not going to stay constrained to China, and that it was highly infectious and was going to become a really big deal for the world. 
And so back in February last year, our CEO, Albert Borla at the time, you know, laid out three priorities, which were ensure the health and safety of our people. Uh, secondly, ensure that we could continue to supply important medicines and vaccines to the world that the world was going to need. And then thirdly, to play our part in finding treatments and cures. And so with those three basic priorities under the third priority, um, I remember probably middle of February talking to Michael Dolston and sort of saying, I wonder if the um, mRNA technology that we were in the process of co-developing uh, along with our partners BioNTech for seasonal flu at the time, which was a collaboration we'd put in place a couple of years previously, could be applied to, um, to COVID-19, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, given mRNA uniquely has the ability to be a very agile technology and with the potential, at least on paper at the time, to look like it could be a very, uh, produce a very effective vaccine. So, uh, so I was involved uh, along with Michael and some of that early, very early work we then put in place. My organization was responsible for working with BioNTech to put in place the framework for a research uh, collaboration and commercialization agreement, which we did in less than a month, which for any of you who know Big Pharma would know that do that from soup to nuts in less than a month is, is uh, quite some going. And I think that's a tribute to both companies. And, uh, you know, then, as they say, the rest is, is history. We were able to move along with BioNTech very quickly to um, develop uh, the four potential uh, constructs that we took into the clinic to really look at their uh, potential for um, uh, a safe and effective vaccine to optimize the profile. In parallel with all of that, we deployed an enormous amount of capital at risk to develop a supply chain that didn't exist, uh, assuming success, which at the time we didn't know if we were going to be successful, although happily um, we and others have proven to, to be able to develop safe and effective vaccines. But we had to deploy an enormous amount of capital to get a supply chain ready to produce what we knew were going to be the hundreds of millions of doses. Uh, that were going to be required. So um, that has been a real journey along with many, many uh, functions across our research organization, our development organization, our commercial organization, and our manufacturing organization, who really are the, the hidden uh, unsung heroes of all of this, along with our partners, BioNTech. And then externally, you know, as governments around the world began to come to that realization, we have tried to collaborate as closely as we could uh, with the United States government here and Project Warp Speed. Uh, we also worked very closely with the, uh, the work that Kate Bingham and her team uh, led uh, with the UK Vaccine uh, Task Force. Uh, as a company, we, we made a very deliberate decision not to take government money. And we did so on the basis that we didn't want to be slowed down. We wanted to be collaborative. We wanted to be mm -hmm. transparent. We wanted to make sure that we could share, obviously, all of our plans with regulators and the scientific community. What we didn't want to do was to be slowed down uh, by you know, having taken money requiring lots of what we considered to be unhelpful oversight you know, and input into plans where we felt honestly, we probably had the subject matter expertise that we needed. And obviously in collaboration with regulators, you know, we were going to, you know, by necessity, uh, get their endorsement uh, for the clinical development uh, plans that we put in place. So that was the, the approach that we took. So we tried to balance on one hand, speed and agility and, um, funding ourselves, you know, what we could afford to fund. Albert was very clear that 
if we failed, it was only money. It was a large amount of money, but it was only money. But the speed really trumped everything um, while remaining focused on having a safe and effective vaccine as being the only outcome that the world was possibly going to benefit from. But on the other hand, we did try and work as collaboratively and as transparently with uh, not just the UK and US governments, but governments all around the world. So that has been and continues to be a big part of the, the work of the organization as we now have a vaccine. We're looking to ramp up uh, manufacturing uh, production of that vaccine and to make sure that we can equitably supply those doses to countries all around the world. It's interesting listening to you because um, I, I note the strands of people from the Bells community being involved in these various uh, programs and companies, you know, Ian Reid, Rod McKenzie, you know, from Pfizer, um, then your opposite number at BioNTech in, in Sean Moret, um, being a, a, a Bells community member as well. So, and then just on the board of Bio, um, Jeremy Levin, Helen Tawley, it's uh, this is why we think our work is so important. Did that help having um, somebody, an opposite number in BioNTech with, with all the um, discussions you had? I mean, obviously, the, I think, you know, the relationships between Pfizer and BioNTech, you know, have been, uh, actually, we're very positive and, and I think we're really grounded in the research collaboration, you know, that we, we had in place that hadn't uh, received a lot of publicity or attention, but I think we had yeah. great relationships between our two research groups and a lot of alignment around the complementary capabilities that both, you know, uh, BioNTech and Pfizer, you know, could bring. And I think that if you really think about what is a great partnership, a great partnership should be when parties can come together to achieve more than either could do on their own. And I think, you know, the work that certainly we were able to do along with uh, BioNTech is exactly that, that uh, we would not have been able to have brought the basic uh, research science, you know, into uh, what it took to develop an mRNA vaccine. Uh, BioNTech, you know, without a partner, certainly wouldn't have been able to scale that to take it into the, the magnitude of clinical uh, trials that we uh, had to, to develop, certainly wouldn't have had the capability to develop a supply chain. So it really was genuinely synergistic. And I think personal relationships and chemistry are definitely a big part of that. And I would have to say, you know, particularly the relationship between Albert and Uger, our two CEOs, you know, has also been pivotal as enormous um, respect and trust between the two that I think has also, mm -hmm. you know, played a really important part of making sure that we walk this path together. Yeah, I mean, collaboration is at the heart of everything we do these days. And you talked earlier about the importance of ecosystem. And I guess um, I view the ability of the UK to effectively join the dots because of a, what I see as a, a uniquely strong dialogue that there is between government, industry, academia and charities in the UK, uh, which really offers real scope for a raft of further innovative thinking beyond the current pandemic, not just innovations, but innovative thinking. And that's buttressed all the while by, you know, the world-class universities that we've got, uh, national life science strategy, and of course, a nationalized health system. Um, is it a global life science venue that Pfizer sees only growing in importance going forward? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the ecosystem isn't, you know, a nation state ecosystem. We really do, you know, science is, is highly democratic. And as a company, mm -hmm. when, we, when we have framed our strategy as um, fundamentally being about fulfilling our purpose of bringing breakthroughs that could change patients' lives, that forces you to follow the best science, agnostic of where it comes from uh, in terms of nations, and certainly agnostic of whether it comes from inside of your own walls or from um, the ecosystem, whether it's you know, academia or biotechs or other large pharmas. And so that is something in a very disciplined way that we have really tried to follow because it's at the core of our strategy to really um, bring the very best science to the world. Because frankly, there are lots of across many therapeutic areas, there are you know, many um, incredible innovations over the course of my career in the industry that our entire industry has been able to, to bring forward. So standard of care mm -hmm. is significantly higher. And so being very clear as to where there is meaningful unmet need and how innovative science can not just be funky science, but where the application of that science can meaningfully improve outcomes for patients is really important. And so to your point, I think, you know, we see, you know, the scientific ecosystem as being, you know, global. And so, yeah. you know, it really forces, I think, governments, every government to really be very thoughtful around um, what it will take for you know, their country to really be competitive, to attract investment. And plainly, the UK is in a position where there are enormous, uh, you know, positives in terms of that jigsaw, you know, ranging from an incredibly strong um, academic uh, system, strong life sciences, you know, heritage in the, the UK, um, and uh, the NHS, you know, which, you know, in terms of its ex execution of clinical studies, I think COVID has proven that the UK probably has one of the most effective clinical trials environments to deliver high quality controlled studies in a very timely manner. But I think one of the sort of things which, you know, has been a part of our advocacy, you know, with the government in the UK is to make sure that coming back to every sector of that ecosystem needing to be healthy, that you can't just look at the outcome of all of those uh, um, research and development efforts being commodities to be procured at simply the lowest possible acquisition cost, that you do need an environment that fosters the uptake and the use of those innovations into clinical practice. And that's one area where the NHS still lags most of the rest of Europe and certainly the United States in terms of the application and uptake of uh, innovations from our industry into clinical practice. And that's, uh, that's something that I remain a very passionate advocate for, um, not just for the benefit of the NHS, but ultimately the patients that the NHS serves as well. So I think in common with every other country in the world, the UK has many great ingredients, but probably no one country has all of those ingredients, you know, perfectly optimized, you know, for our sector at least. And so we all need to play a constructive part in being advocates uh, to make sure that we can uh, ultimately do the very best thing that we can for the patients that we all serve. Yeah. Uh, I mean, your journey is actually almost a rare phenomenon these days, actually, with one company all the way through. Uh, were you ever tempted to take the leap? either to another farmer or even a small biotech company at any stage? No, I, I can honestly say I, I've, never, I've never had another interview with another company in the course of uh, my entire career with Pfizer. And, and the simple reason for that was, um, first of all, culture. Um, Pfizer you know, is a very different company today that, to the one that I joined 34 years ago. Yep. 
but I think Pfizer has, you know, a healthy culture where values really are at the core of what it feels like to, to work here. I think secondly, you, you get to work with great people at Pfizer. Um, that's not unique to our company. Uh, many other companies have great, uh, really top talent, but Pfizer certainly does. And thirdly, from a personal perspective, I've always you know, had the opportunity to learn and develop and grow and take on new challenging assignments. And when you put all of those ingredients together, that's a, that makes for a very fulfilling experience. So truthfully, it's not to this point in my career, at least uh, not something that I've ever contemplated because uh, we've certainly had plenty to keep us busy here. Well, that's very nice to hear. I guess in closing, I mean, one of the things that I'm struck by is I mean, Pfizer doesn't just have a whole bunch of British trained talent um, just in the UK, but around the world. I mean, we've, we've got around 70 or so in the Bells community that are, work for Pfizer. Um, any final thoughts that you could offer uh, and or some advice to us in terms of the work and the strategy of Bells going forward? And are we helping you to maintain your own connection? to the, the old country. I mean, you're obviously heavily involved with the Life Science Council, um, but do you find that uh, Bells is helping that process along? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, coming back to the idea of collaboration and relationship and exploring mm -hmm. how partnerships can be formed to help either individuals or companies or organizations to do more together than they could separately. And I think um, as part of that ecosystem, I think Bells, you know, plays a really important role as well in affording connections between people who may have a common heritage or academic environment or cultural environment wherever, you know, we have ended up in the world. And so being able to, you know, make those connections, you know, being able to um, uh, ensure that that community is aware of, you know, innovations that are taking place in other, uh, either led by other individuals or in organizations that they may lead is enormously valuable because <clears throat> I remain passionate about that basic concept that, you know, truthfully is really true in science, that um, science is incredibly democratic and to really uh, drive innovation through. You need to have a very clear focus on what it's for, to challenge yourself, to not drink your own Kool-Aid and to recognize that there may very well be better science is being done somewhere else than the science that you're aware of. And so being very outward focused, but with the intent to apply that to really benefit the patients that you serve really is for me, the sort of the full circle. And I think in terms of that the health of that ecosystem. I think Bells and other organizations that can really help to um, optimize those uh, relationships with a purpose is something that's enormously valuable. So please keep up the good work. Thank you very much. And John, uh, thank you for what has been a stimulating and great conversation. Thank you. No, thank you. Real pleasure to be with you.